You are listening to a Whitebridge Baptist Church sermon podcast. Thanks, Dave. Some of us have commented on the providence of God in bringing uh, two men to us this past week. One that was Phil Intima, who who uh, led us in this uh, feasibility study, interviewing 49 different units from our church and and coming out with these kinds of conclusions and recommendations and and looking at the, the, the facility idea, a uh, new facility. And then right after that, on Monday uh, to Wednesday, we had Don Cousins with us, who is the author of the book Leadership, which many of us have been reading. And um, his uh, focus was on how we, we can be growing to be an equipping church. And, and so focused on building people, because that's what the church is all about, is is growing people to find where God has gifted and anointed them and, and then forming this body that together serves the kingdom on earth. And so uh, it was interesting. And, and so, you know, here we have uh, one focus on this building of a facility and then this other focus on the building of the church, the real church, the people of God. And uh, I think that it was God's providence that it become that way because it, it's a reminder to us as a church family that that anything that we do, you know, right now, whether it's be building a new facility or to be calling a new staff person to be director of student ministries, which we are looking toward doing, um, all of this is all about equipping. All of this is all about building people. All of this, uh, whether we, if we build a new building, if we increase our staff, if we change our programs, if we do whatever we do, it's got to be about growing people so that we fulfill what God has for each of us as individuals and co- collectively as a church. And, and so would you, would you join us in praying to that end? That's what, that's, that's what it, only thing that matters. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against. It's, it's about the people of God. G, uh, Peter said in, in 2 Peter, uh, I believe it's chapter 1, that you also are being built together to be a, uh, a, a living house where the Holy Spirit lives. You know, you, you people are being built together to be a temple of God. And so we, we know that God is about his business among us and we rejoice. So uh, we thank the Lord for this extra light on the path that this feasibility study has been. Now we've got to go back to God and say, God, what does this mean? What do, what do your people say? What do you say? And, and we proceed. So pray for the board and for those that will be meeting in the next couple of weeks to uh, look at that. My heart is full this morning. I, I'm so uh, eager to share the Word of God with you. Um, I, I love that hymn, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine. Uh, I, I, it brought me back to my childhood. I grew up for the first uh, 10 years or 11 years of my life in a brethren assembly kind of church. And then uh, at a certain point in time, we went over toward the Baptist church. And, and during those early years, our church uh, would have these camp meetings and we would go off to a place, I think if I'm not mistaken, it was called Carrick Camp near Newstadt, Ontario. And uh, we would go out there Sunday evening and, and they literally had sawdust uh, floors. It was a big barn with uh, kind of benches all across the place. And there'd be singing and music and then there'd be preaching and there'd be an altar call and there'd be people turning to the Lord. And it was just an incredible time in my early spiritual formation. And uh, one of the songs that, that song, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine, it brought back those memories. 
uh, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. What, what's this word? Blessed assurance? Uh, perfect submission. Perfect submission. All is at rest. I in my Savior am happy and blessed. Watching and waiting, looking above, filled with his goodness. Lost in his love. Talk about a God-directed life. A God-saturated look out. This morning as I was coming to church, I, I stopped at the corner of, of Waverly and Keniston. Or, sorry, at that point it's Bishop Grannon. <laughs> I don't know anymore. <laughs> I only live here. Um, and uh, I, was, I, I was waiting for my advanced green, but the guy beside me had the green and he's not going. And I'm, I'm thinking, and all of a sudden I realized we're looking at these two Canada geese just floating in. To land on one of these little man-made lakes, you know, just floating in, and they were so close and they were so low. If a truck would have been driving, it would have been hit, hitting the side of the truck. And I realized we were just gazing at these geese, and we're, we forget the greens. We don't care, you know. I think that's kind of what we're supposed to do with God. I think that's what we're supposed to do, whether it's in our own private time with God or together here. We're supposed to be some become so distracted from the ordinary routine of green lights that everything goes on hold because we're beholding something that's out of the ordinary. Isn't that what we want in our walk with God? Don't we want to step out of the ordinary so that we could behold the glory of God? I believe that's what... Every human heart was created for. I believe so. We've been studying the life of David and we're just about nearing the end of 1 Samuel, which is the first half of his life. We're going to begin the second half of his life in 2 Samuel in, the, in September. And uh, it's an incredible time. The last time we looked two weeks ago at David, we were, we were at a very sad verse in chapter 27, verse 1. A very disturbing verse. Words from this, this passage in chapter 27, verse 1. But David, it says, thought to himself, One of these days I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing I can do is to escape to the land of the Philistines. Very sad, disturbing words. David did not come to this conclusion overnight. We can see in chapter 26 he'd been pondering his fate against Saul uh, for some time now. And in a moment of weakness and vulnerability, he concluded the best he could do was to be to run from his problems. That's the best he could do. Just run from his problems. So David decided to run from Israel. He went to the Philistine territory. He started lying and deceiving so that he could make peace with the king of Achish, the king of the Philistines. And he no longer pursued his God-anointed task of being the king of Israel and Judah. Now, we see David at weak points before. We've been looking at them uh, since January. But, but he didn't always run like this. In fact, he often inquired of the Lord. Chapter 23 is a classic example, facing in incredible stress. Saul is closing in on him. And what does he do? He, he inquires of the Lord. But here in chapter 27, it, it, it's just, he snaps. He, he runs. He, he bolts. He, 
panics, worry, fear overcome his heart. In fact, the words literally in chapter 27, verse 1, are not just he thought to himself. It says he said to himself in his heart. He said to himself in his heart, the best I can do is run. You know, the thing is that every one of us is in danger if we are left alone to our own thoughts with no scripture to inform and guide and provide light for our path, with no time close to God in prayer to hear the Holy Spirit speak His still small voice, with no companions of faith to walk beside us in critical moments and speak God's Word into our lives. We are all in danger of stagnating, obsessing in our own heads and hearts. And if we continue on that path, we will make bad decisions with consequences. You know, I have no trouble believing in the doctrine of original sin because I live it out on a daily basis. I sin and sin always brings some kind of suffering and yet I keep on sinning. We can be so foolish. The reason that we do that is because there's this incredible poisonous gravity that sits on the human soul weighs us down so heavy that we will gravitate toward making ourselves and our perceptions the reference point for life instead of faith in a living, all-powerful God. That's the gravity that sits on your soul unless something of a higher law than gravity lifts it up. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, Paul says in Romans chapter 8. So David does this. He, he makes himself the reference point. He compromises. Chapter 27, verse 7. He compromises for a year and four months. He is in the Philistine territory. He is lying. He has lost his identity as an anointed king of Israel. He has compromised his character. He has to lie and deceive. He has stepped over the line as now slaughtering people on these raids that his men and him go out to in order to win the favor of the Philistine king so that he really believes that David has crossed over from Saul to the Philistines and can be trusted now. Can't leave any survivors behind in case someone comes and rats on him. And David is a different man during this period of time. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 30. You would think that what I just described would say, David is already in crisis mode. But guess what? God's about to push him over the edge. Chapter 30 and beginning in verse 1. Would you stand with me and let's read a few verses that will set the stage for what we're going to look at today. David and his men reached Ziklag on the third day. This is returning now to the Philistine home that the king of the Philistines had given him. And now the Amalekites had raided the Negev and the Ziklag and they had attacked Ziklag and burned it and had taken captive the women and all who were in it, both young and old, They killed none of them, but carried them off as they went on their way. When David and his men came to Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. And so David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. David's two wives had been captured. 
Ahinoam of Jezreel, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was so bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. But David found strength in the Lord his God. And then David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Bring me the ephod. Abiathar brought it to him. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue the raiding party? Will I overtake them? Pursue them, he answered. You will certainly overtake them and succeed in the rescue. May God bless his word. Thank you. You may be seated. Crisis can come to us into our lives because it is thrust upon us. And crisis can come to us because we bring it on ourselves. David had a little bit of both happen to him, as so often our crises are as well. David had a crisis on his life because Saul was pursuing him to kill him. And this was just thrust upon him. And we see him running around in the, in the wilderness of Judah like a, like a vagabond. And yet, in the middle of that fear and, and terror, he made some decisions which, which brought crisis upon his own life. And so, he made some choices. Choice to move to the Philistine country, acquiesce and look like a, a, a loyal subject to the Philistine king, go on raiding parties to enemies that were common to either Israel and Philistines or just Israel, leave no survivors. And in the process, he poked his eye in the Amalekites' uh, face so much that they were, they were disturbed and, and they were going to get some revenge. We often think we don't have choices, but we usually do. When we face crises, I read an article this past week about this idea of fundamental issues that lead to bad decisions. And one is that I didn't trust God Two, I didn't think he would use his power to save me. Three, I didn't think I was worthy, so I didn't understand his grace. And four, I was impatient with God to answer my prayers my way. David probably did not trust God at this season of his life. He doubted that God would continue to use his power to deliver him from Saul like he'd been doing for years. He doubted whether he was worthy of God's grace. And finally, he was impatient with God's answer to prayer, and so he took matters into his own hands. You know, I think we can all identify with some elements of these points. And I'd like to share three things with you that come from David's experience that I hope you can identify with. And I'm especially speaking to those of you today who are going through something incredibly difficult. And you will see what I mean as we go ahead. First of all, you'll notice from the insert in your bulletins that we're going to look at, at disruptions of life, which are a crisis in some form of loss. Disruptions of life that are fulfilled or revealed in some form of loss. I want you to know that I did a little word study this past week about the difference between the word disrupt and the word interrupt. And they're very different, although they sound so similar, and we even maybe use them inter- interchangeably. To disrupt has the meaning of breaking apart, disturbing something's course. To rupture, that's where disrupt comes, a rupture. To throw into disorder. But the word interrupt is slightly different. It means to break into or interfere with a progress with the assumption that the progress continues after the interruption. 
So you get the difference. Yeah, disruption is something that comes in and it, it ruptures, it breaks. It, you can never go back to the same process. But an interruption is something that's inserted. You have to deal with it and then you get on with wherever it was before. Now, so if any one of us understood the difference between these two concepts, any one of us would choose an interruption in life than a disruption, right? Because we would choose to have something land on us that will enable us to go back to the way life was because we liked it that way or we preferred it that way because otherwise we wouldn't have chosen it. David, in 1 Samuel 30 is not facing an interruption in life. He is facing a disruption. He could not go back after this moment, regardless of the outcome, and be the same. And perhaps that is the mark of a real-life crisis. A real-life crisis leaves you so much that you cannot go back to being the same person you were before. A true life crisis disrupts life so invasively, so radically is the loss, so invasive is the trauma that you can never be the same again. Some of you know what I'm talking about because you've faced it or you are in the middle of it right now. I've never faced a life disruption. And any of you that have faced life disruptions the way I'm describing it, do not need any of us to come along one day and say to you, I know how you feel. Because I've had some interruptions in my life. Do you understand what I'm saying? That cheapens your experience. First of all, we don't know what anyone else's experience really is to begin with. David faced a disruption. What did it look like? Well, take a look at chapter 30. We can count several losses in this huge life disruption. He lost this battle with the Amalekites, at least for the time being. This raiding had provoked them. They'd come back now and they had taken his, his wives and children. They had lost their home city, Ziklag. Their homes had been burned. The city had been destroyed. And the men had lost their wives and sons and daughters. And they wept until it says they lost all their strength. And then finally, notice in verse 6, David lost the trust of these incredible faithful men. 600 of them. 600 men that were ready to lay down their lives for David are now ready to lay down his life because of what has happened. David, you see... If in this snapshot of David's life, he's defeated, depressed, violated, abandoned. He's at the lowest possible place in his life. This is a disruption of life, not an interruption, not a detour, not a change of plans. This is a disruption of such magnitude in this moment of David's life that he is despairing of life itself. He wants to die. In the benediction of the first service, Pastor Alf came forward and in the process of sharing about it, he said, David lost his innocence. This vagabond, prodigal, year and four month journey ending with this event brought David into a new experience. He lost his innocence. He was going to move ahead somehow, but, and it was going to be different. We just don't know what kind of different. 
And you and I, when we face crises of whatever kind, we're going to move ahead differently. It just depends what kind of difference is it going to be. And so, I want to encourage you this morning, if you feel your life has had this kind of crisis, despairing of even life itself, just as David was and his men, do not despair. Just as David and his men did not know what was going to be the outcome of this crisis, neither do you know what is going to be the outcome of your crisis. You do not know what the next few days could bring, the next week, the next six months. You do not know. David did not know what the next few days would bring in terms of the loss of his wife and children. Hang on. David could not see what God was up to in his search and rescue because he was blinded by his grief. You know, Viktor Frankl, who is, uh, was an Austrian psychiatrist who survived Auschwitz, the Nazi concentration camp, wrote a book afterward called Man's Search for Meaning. But he didn't just survive Auschwitz, he studied Auschwitz. And as he studied Auschwitz, he came to conclude some things about human suffering and about meaning in life and purpose. And his conclusion was simply this, that those who could, could somehow find meaning in their sufferings survived, and those who could not find meaning in their sufferings did not survive. His famous statement is this, to live is to suffer. Therefore, if life has meaning, suffering has meaning. Let me repeat that. To live is to suffer. Therefore, if life has meaning, then all the sufferings that come along with life have meaning as well. Now, you don't come to that conclusion quickly or easily. Paul came to it. Paul went through severe disruptions of life. He reflects on one of them or some of them in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. He says these words, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure far beyond our ability to endure so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we felt in our hearts the sentence of death. But this happened. Here we go. Some meaning found here. This happened... So that, he says, we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. And on him we've set our hope that he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. And then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. Interesting. If you take a look at that paragraph in Paul's letter, you can see some levels of meaning surfacing in the, in the incredible crucible of suffering that Paul experienced. It starts with him understanding that he was learning to rely on God better. And then it goes out to this place where even others were seeing and giving thanks to God and growing in faith as they also helped the, the people suffering by their prayers. You can hear what Paul writes, that he was finding meaning in his sufferings. But notice that the meaning was all connected to his faith in God 
And David, whom we are studying right now, could not see any reason in his sufferings as he ran from Saul. And what made him almost despair of life itself was losing sight of God in the middle of the crisis. We do that. We can do that. The same goes for us. Rarely do we see the reasons for our sufferings, the purpose, the meaning of the suffering in the middle of the suffering. And if we do not keep our eyes on God and put our hope in God that that He will yet bring to pass something and help us to see it and so on, then we are very easily close to despairing of life. Which leads to a second point, the desperation of faith, the renewed hope in God. Sometimes the disruptions of our lives and severe loss cause such desperation that we discover new hope in God. We see this in David. For the first time in 16 months, David says, Oh God! For the first time in 16 months, David opens up his life to God. For the first time in 16 months, it says, David strengthened himself in the Lord. For the first time in 16 months, it says, David told the priest, bring me the ephod. And in that same moment, he said, it says he inquired of the Lord. For the first time in 16 months, David said, I can't be my own reference point. I need God. We might ask why David took so long to do so. Why did he not come to his senses earlier? Why did he not turn to the Lord earlier? Had shame or guilt or unbelief kept him from going to God sooner? Did he think after having been gone so long that there was no use in seeking God? Did he think, like you and I often think, that he had locked himself up in his own assumptions about shame and not imagining that God could unlock that prison of shame and set him free? You see, it's very true what A.W. Tozer said, that what comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Because you see, if you have, as David in this season of his life did, if you have God in the box that describes and sees you the same way you see you, then you're not going to go to him for hope. But God was so very otherly and holy and set apart and different than David's conceptual understanding of God was, as we're about to see. And so David, when he gets desperate enough, he has nowhere to turn. He turns to God. He finds strength in God. I think he's surprised by God, as any of us will be, because the boxes that we put God in are are never, from our human understanding, going to ever be equal to the God of the Bible, the God of mercy, the God that is for us. In verse 8, it says that God answers David's prayer and he says, go, go, go and pursue them. I'm going to give them into your hands. You're going to get your wife and your children. All of them are coming back. Have you ever gone to God expecting wrath and received mercy? Have you ever had that experience? I think I've told you the story maybe more than once about an experience that God used my earthly father to teach me about that. My brother and I, who had a habit of fighting, uh, were, you know, it was my mom, my mom's, one of her favorite lines was, wait till your father gets home. And we we experienced that on a few occasions. and, and, And my dad said, follow me down to the river. And we knew what that meant. And uh, we were sure we were going to get a licking. 
for fighting with each other. We got down there and my dad just sat us down on a log and, and he wept. And he, he just wept and he said, I, it, it breaks my heart to see my boys fighting each other. I expected wrath and I got mercy. It, it, it forever changed me in my behavior with my brother too. But in David's case, it's even more so because David not only did not get punished for this incredible year and four months, but God in his mercy restores all that was lost. And that's the next point about our message, discovery of mercy, a restored purpose for living. In 1 Samuel 30, it records not only the success of David's search and rescue mission to retrieve all the women and children back that had been kidnapped to be sold into slavery, but it also shows God's rescue mission to, to win back David, this anointed king, to be living a, a life of purpose instead of a life of waste. And so David in this, in this time recovers not only his family, but his faith as well. We read in verse 11 that he, they find an Egyptian slave that had been abandoned by an Amalekite master. They, he, he, uh, he leads them right to the Amalekite camp. And from morning, dusk till one evening till the next day, they, David and his 400 men fight and they, and they win and they bring back this plunder. But the story tells us in the scriptures in 1 Samuel 30 that 200 of the 600 men were too exhausted to continue on. And so they stay back by a ravine near the, the city of Ziklag. And when the 400 are coming back with the plunder, they get to the 200 and they say to David, they must not share in any of the plunder because they didn't fight for it. And now we see a transformed king start to take his place as a ruler of Judah and his people because he says, and he doesn't just say it, he lays it down as a lasting ordinance, it says, He says, no, brothers, we must not do with this what the Lord has given us. We must not do this to our brothers. And not only does he say that every brother, every soldier, whether they went and fought or didn't, should get the same share. But when he got back to his hometown, he sent some of the plunder out to every town in Judah where David was king. At least he knew he was. He wasn't acting as it yet. You see, what happened was that this man not only received the mercy of God in that moment, in this transaction, in this disruption of life, but he also, he also began to live by that mercy. There was real life transformation take place. The crisis and disruption of David's life resulted in never being able to go back to the way things were. Now you say, was it a severe mercy? Yeah. It was a severe mercy. Some of you today are going through perhaps severe mercies. Some of you perhaps are going through incredible disruptions or interruptions. Maybe you haven't even had long enough to define what you're going through. This morning as we conclude the service and the worship team comes, I want an opportunity to to pray over you. And I'm going to ask that as we conclude the service that you'd come forward and come to the front. Some of us can pray with you. Just whisper in our ear what it is that you're going through, and we will pray for you. And uh, we're going to just sing a couple of songs, and um, if you need to go, slip out, you you need to go. But we're just going to take this moment. If no one comes forward, friends, that's that's, that's fine. 
No awkward moments here. We just want God the Spirit to do what He wants to do. And if someone needs to be prayed for in the fellowship of believers, we want to just do that. So would you worship the Lord with us today? And any of you that want to be prayed over, come to the front and we'll pray over you in private.